1: Welcome, Mitch, to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. Do you want to introduce yourself, please? Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Ryan. So my name's Mitch, I guess. In terms of my background, somewhat of a varied background, a little bit of a non-linear path. I, I started off when I was a child as a racing driver into go-karting, moving through the ranks into Formula 3, ended up being a British champion, um, but I didn't come from a particularly well-off background, so that was always a sponsored drive. And when 2008 mm. happened, uh, the financial crisis, uh, the first thing they pulled was uh, sponsoring fancy cars. So that dream came to a crashing end, kind of ended, move into the event management space. And I think at the age of 16, bought my first business, ultimately scaled up to about 30 individuals in a full-blown sort of catch me if you can episode where a bunch of them were adults and I had to almost conceal how young I actually was. I went together with my best friend, but nonetheless scaled it up my first exit when we were 20, I guess because I was the, the weirdo mathematician at school, was told I had to go and be a banker. So that's what I ended up doing and ended up working at the nation's favorites of, I say that in quotes, with a Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan and Barclays. But but all, all jokes aside, I actually, if it's possible quite enjoyed my stint, um, seven, eight years stint in investment banking. I think primarily I was in the solutions group, uh, meaning I had a kind of a black ops mandate to really engage in any sort of asset class across 20, $30 billion financing deals, in global jurisdiction, and really got my weeds and my, my head into the weeds of how companies behave and how sovereigns and institutions and how it's all very, very different. Left stepped up well in 2015 to co-found my first tech startup, I guess second business, because the grass is greener outside of the corporate, the corporate oh. lens and what's the name? So yes, co-found my first tech startup in the retail tech space. Went very, very well, went to five rounds of funding, got to 300,000 MAU, had a nice hockey stick growth curve, and the whole business was essentially helping the high street get more customers on demand and then give back the analytics for those customers. Ultimately, sort of digitize the high street play, ultimately mm-hmm. like a Google Paperclip, clip with the offline space. And then COVID came along and having the best week of revenue going into the pandemic, we were gearing up to exit and went from our best week of revenue to zero in 27 minutes, which was... Pretty wow. challenging as a marketplace business, consumers locked at home, retailers and high street closed down. And, you know, with all these sort of negative revolutions, I think the bad makes way for the good. Started doing a lot of consulting work, became a CRO at Olio, which is a, a food waste company trying to solve the problem of food waste at scale. And we sort of helped them close like a 40 million series B, ended up going to another startup that I co-founded in the interactive entertainment space, left that world or left that behind us and, and sort of stood down as a COO back in January. And now I am a COO at a machine learning computer vision company, specializing in applying computer vision to retail at scale. Wow. Sorry, that was a Are bit you... of a long, long no, answer. No. I realized as I'm hearing myself, like I need to get more <laughs> succinct with, that, with the, uh, the non-linear part. As a friend of mine would
2: say is you bull call shit.
1: That's what you do. <laughs> bull call shit. I'm glad we can, I can, I'm glad I can use uh, <laughs> some French in this. I can use some French today. <laughs>
2: Yeah, he's, he's actually a very good character. It, 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 he has a better way with accents than I do, but uh, he makes it sound really like it like a, a John Gibraltar kind of one liner, or even a Schwarzenegger kind of one-liner, one liner, one stands the test of time. <laughs> Great. I mean it's quite funny because I, I think we might have just missed each other, at JP Morgan. Yeah. Because I think I started there 2012 and you left to go to Barclays around then. Not that we were yeah. really in the same space at all. I was in the back, you know, with the hamsters making all this show, the wheels were turning from a technology point of view. But I mean, so I'm curious, I mean, so you did, so you said mathematician. So, so what made you start a business when you were so young in, when, when most people your age, like, you know, I was your age, I was doing building my own stuff, but I was also playing sport and socializing and all that kind of stuff. I mean, what was the the drive?
1: Great question. It's always hard to cast my mind back to the uh, 16 year old version of me, but I guess you know, on one hand it was every single weekend was dominated by, by racing from the age of eight till 16, literally to three days a week. So I think when, when that came to a crashing end, there was this void. I just wasn't really sure what Mm. to do in that spare time. So I think that was probably one reason. Another one is a little bit of the, the school I went to that were very proactive in teaching us hustle mentality. It was a very good secondary school, but it was very exactly all around empowering you to kind of, is a bit more of a, of a hustle mechanic and that you know one's entitled and you've got to make your own way so i think combination of upbringing also my father came from nothing and kind of took himself from from almost poverty and that and kind of deep poverty to, to being somewhat well off so i think it's having that kind of program programmed in me along with the racing background which i think as a racing driver you're, you're taught from a very young age especially in karting if you spin off get back on and every single place even if you're last and you make up one place it matters so i think that kind of drive and push is just instilled from a very young age yeah it's amazing i mean I, I i never drove cars but i played a lot
2: of sport as i mentioned and and yeah. i had a coach and it's, it's amazing how little things in, in your in your sporting stuff teaches you for life so i used to have a coach who used to say always recover no matter what happens just recover and if you recover then don't worry about the mistake doesn't matter yeah and and i watch it now with my son he's five and he's 26, but he's a big boy, so he gets treated like a nine-year-old, mm-hmm. and I see it, it, it got, what I went through as a kid, well, I was also quite a big kid, he's he's learning that resilience now that he has to just figure it out to do something, and I don't mm-hmm. think it's something that you can ever necessarily teach somebody without making them struggle, um, right. and, and you've got to step back and let them struggle.
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah, look, uh, I, to exactly that point, I think no one learned anything from success. People learn from failure, unfortunately. Bad needs to happen to cause change. If everything mm. goes dandy and rosy, you're not faced with adversity and you're not faced to, to react or to proactive anything. It's just everything's a status quo and fine. It's only in the face of adversity that people are forced to, to learn and to adapt and change. So. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, tenacity is born out of failure, and I think that's where Sadi did a really good job in celebrating failure, so long as it's quick and inexpensive. Yeah, so that you can develop something new from that and take those learnings. No, for sure, for sure. And I mean, the various businesses you've been involved in—I mean—are
2: those businesses that that have been something that's resonated with you, and you've got I've got to do this, or has it been something that you've kind of got, brought people together, or, or wangled people together to to do something you've wanted to do, and it's kind of off- i don't know if you can understand my question but
1: i think so <laughs> i think i get you No, no i i like i think one one thing that's always that I, I learned coming from from maybe like yourself from the investor banking world or the corporate world more like into into a startup land or at least being a founder was you know making all the money in the world as a 24 25 year old it really taught me you know working 20 hours a day i couldn't spend the money my friends weren't the same place i didn't have time to see any of my friends and family and i just thought that was the status quo you know working was a miserable endeavor and to be honest in the team i was in i actually was quite lucky it was really very different it wasn't particularly uh, monkey say monkey do as some roles can be in the corporate world it was always very hmm. challenging and different but nevertheless i think where i'm trying to get to is when i left that world in 2015 and co-founded my first you know tech startup first year, I had savings, like me and my two co-founders, were ultimately were best mates from school. And the, you know, we we were we raised a round of funding, which we put all into our employees, into the product. And our assumption was, you know, we're going to raise another round second year, and then we can start paying ourselves. And in reality, I think that was naive founder, like being a naive founder, the first time founder, and it took a lot longer to raise a second round. The point here is, is that you know, after my savings kind of dissipated after the first year, in the second year, I was. Uh, being paid to walk dogs i was doing delivery orders i was airbnb in my apartment out, staying paying my parents home all to make ends meet and i was happier doing that every single day than i ever was a day in banking and i wasn't a miserable banker and that taught me to follow passion and over index of passion and the money will just follow so long as you're happy so i guess your question in terms of the businesses that i've either founded or been a part of it's always come from conviction i can't get out of bed especially as a founder where mm. generally you're you're a lower salary, but a higher equity. I can't get out of bed and be hyper-motivated. And I like to be quite an ambitious person in that respect unless I really believe in what we're doing and genuinely, it genuinely resonates. So, you know, Nez, the first endeavor, it was my baby. It was all our baby and, and, you know, it was a pure pursuit of passion. I must be honest. I have never been the one that's created the idea per se. I've often been brought into something. So when you said, you know, is it you kind of stitching people together? I've often been a, an operator as opposed to, you know, the CEO it's so a COO title. And I love that. I love being an executor mm. and taking the, the vision or the madness of the CEO and pulling it into building blocks. For some reason that's my, my jam. Have, um, so, yeah. have, have you ever read the book rocket fuel? Rocket fuel? Rocket fuel. It's I a don't book. Think so I don't yeah.
2: think so. It's worth, it's worth reading. And, and I'll just tell it into, into the two main things that i got out of it. One is there's two roles in every business is the visionary and there's the integrator.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: and and you're an integrator it sounds like Mm -hmm. and 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 i'm very similar typically won't come up with the idea but once once you grasp the idea you'll make it happen you'll execute Mm -hmm. and you'll you'll bring people together to but someone someone else will do that visionary stuff and and whatever and and it it makes sense that you kind of have jumped around when i say jumped around obviously you spend a lot of time in in different things but but you've you've your trajectory has changed as things have changed because It makes sense that that's what would happen, and you've used probably all your knowledge from previous things to fuel the next thing, and Finger. you just found you've just found somebody else that's giving you a new thing to be interested
1: in to go. Yeah, okay, that, that means something to me. Let me do it. Ultimately, yeah, I think that's a very good way of putting it. And you know, I'm massive in a massive, massive over index of momentum. You know, and having just even as tiny progress week or week, that's something that really fuels me. And yeah, until in, like the integrator side of it, it's, it's, yeah, I view it very much the journey. I know when my end goal or what I want to be doing is an end goal in life. And I know there's no, there's no one way of doing it. It is a number of steps to get there. So yeah, my engagements of all, you know, four or five years that I'm in, and it's, it's each engagement has been that huge step for the next platform and each of the startups I founded, you know, the way they've been founded each time, the backers that join us, the investors that have come on board, it's, it's been a huge step changes from each one and, I never, for one, I never, you know, as a as a banker, I thought, you know, and I was in solutions group, so a lot of my work was in derivatives, and it was very, very niche skills. But who hmm. on earth is going to want a derivative expert at the age of twenty four that's on a silly salary you can't replicate anywhere else because that's what IB does? It traps you in with a high with a high salary. Now, who's going to want my skill set? What have I got that's relevant? I really had a huge amount of uh, of an empty crisis, and I know you know lots of us suffer from it. And in truth, actually, you kind of see with each engagement I've had, a, you know, been a part of and an operator, A, those experiences, as you know, and IB have become very relevant, not from a technical side, but a soft side. You know, being able to conduct it yeah. up in any meeting and going into the deep end, which I know you had as well, right? But, you know, then even then, like my experiences at, at my first startup at Nez, which was helping the high street with a kind of a, a football driving machine on demand. Totally different to my second startup, uh, which was helping musicians make interactive experiences. Couldn't be a world apart, but that experience from the first that taught me how to market like a wizard. And I've never been a marketer, i never been praying, but it was a marketing biz. We were helping the high street market on, yeah. the fund, uh, algorithmically. So taking all of that piece into, into Volta was a huge part. And, you know, I brought with finance systems and systems, architecture and stuff. That I just didn't think would be portable, but it all is. And every single time this journey, exactly. It's sometimes things feel like they, they won't they won't get aligned or, or, or dot up. But in reality, it's, I find it quite remarkable how much stuff does join up in the long run and how many things you realize, Oh, that had to have happened or it wouldn't have been this way. And it's quite beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. when, when you see life through that lens, I, I think it's a very important
2: lens to have. I think a lot of people get very caught up in, in their failures.
1: You know, I know someone
2: that she didn't take a job and, and, you know, the rest of her life is, is, is a disaster because she didn't take that one job five years ago. And, and, the reality is that by not taking that job, something else happened. And it might might not, it may not have been a good thing at the time. But in hindsight, if you look now, at five years later or 10 years later, I can't remember when this was, but, you know, she's done other things successfully. So, but you've got to realize that you had to go backwards to go forward sometimes. And people don't like to, I think we're we we we're trained by movies and by TV series and that, that you always have to be going forwards and mm-hmm. upward. It's okay sometimes to know, there's, you know, there's,
1: you step up, step in or step out that's sort of the three things absolutely but lateral mm-hmm. movement is exactly a still progress you know so for me it's so long as you're learning that will pay dividends at some point continually learn you know dare to be different dare to challenge and as you said you know people people are often very 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 scared of failure rightly so you know, i don't see i'm never sitting going oh, i can't wait to fail don't don't be wrong but i think <laughs> I've, over the years from from moving to into so many different sectors and often having to take a step back and going, okay, you know, I, you know, in between my first tech startup, Nez, and then into Volta, the, the interactive experiences, one well, I mentioned it was during COVID and I, I was a CRO for some time at a series B, series C company, you know, on a much higher salary with huge promise and huge backers and consciously made a decision. I, I love music. It's been a hobby of mine, a passion of mine. I'm gonna take a step back to being a founder again, starting from zero and growing that whole piece because I appreciate it. it's, if I need to learn about this space. And it was very, you know, mixed reality, Web three, AR, VR. That was the learning I kind of over-indexed for there in that period during COVID. It needed to be done, and I guess I have a, even a tattoo to that effect, which is started <laughs> with the clouds passing. The idea being the clouds will always pass, no matter how cloudy a day is. It will pass when that sun comes through. It will be very abundantly clear as to why. So yeah, I've almost now got to the point of something bad happened was failure i'm like good i know in two or three months or a year or whatever it, i will see why that had to happen and it will be very clear yeah so i have i've yet to find it not be a positive example and there's some stories i can't go into in a in a podcast format we can have a, have a drink one day but certainly an extreme elements of adversity have kind of come through and it's still proven to be a, a silver light it's still proven to be a silver lining into the tunnel
2: yeah no i can imagine i mean we we have that 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 Personal conversation. I'll share mine as well. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I can sure tell, so, tell you, I can tell you from a professional point of view. There's been there's been jobs that I've left, which at the time people have said you're nuts to be going. Like this is the thing, and I'm, and I'm going. It's not not my thing. Like I just know this is not this is not going to work for me. And six months later, I've done something else, and it's been you know three years of of enjoying enjoying doing something altruistically more important than what I was doing. And it's it's looking back and going, you know what, actually it was a good decision um to do that. And and you just going to have that that sort of gut feeling or that confidence you're doing the right thing, as much as the 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 willingness to take a chance, I guess.
1: Absolutely. And yeah, to, to retort just to that, I, I had a very similar thing. I, I stood down as being a full-time COO, ultimately a co-founder of my own business as Volta. That I you know started in January and a lot of it was over um the way the company's strategic vision was changing was just something I no longer could get out of bed for. I just didn't get it. Couldn't wrap mm. my heads around my mind around it. It became just whether right or wrong. It just became so far removed from from what I could wrap my mind around as an integrator. The vision became out of scope with what I could even work was, and had to make that difficult decision. Yes, it was tough. Of course it was. It was the baby you know I built with, a bunch of you know ultimately became a, the CEO's best friend, right? And and is a very difficult time, but. Now here I am and, and ultimately sitting as a COO at a, an AI company I love and there's you know, huge progress. I've got other engagements and companies from, you know, supporting an NGO at TechFugees, empowering refugees to, to working on a neurodiverse yeah. dating app. So it's like I get to now really kind of give back in a way and, and help.
2: Well, so, so all three of those things I wanted to bring up next anyway. So oh, let's, sure. talk about the, let's talk about the neurodiversity dating app, because that's that I'm curious about. So so what made you get into that? Because I mean, you've been with that a year now, so you've got a bit of time with it. I mean, what started that for you?
1: Yeah, so again, I guess uh, the title there is a, a COO. It's it's uh, it's a part-time sort of COO mandate. So a lot of my sort of work now is being this sort of new word of fractional. I'm having a kind of a number of different engagements, but yeah, I, I was the CEO of that business. I guess the founder at the time, but before it was even incorporated, ultimately as, as neurodiverse himself, had been diagnosed with ADHD, dyslexia, and more recently with with, with minor autism. And, and to him, it was a breath of fresh air. He kind of felt like, wow, I, I've always known of it felt different, but and then now understood as to why. And I guess the point of inspiration he had was... There is no safe space in the dating world or even any matchmaking place no. for the neurodiverse. It's almost a scary place. You know, Where do people who are autistic or dyslexic or, or whatnot go? People even extreme OCD have different needs and sets to the, the mass market. And I think from his perspective, it was, it was the point of he just wanted something that was inclusive. didn't have to be serving just a neurodiverse, but just a safe space mm. no matter what you are. And seemingly... You know, rightly so, we've had huge, um, huge, huge, huge conversations with sexism, with racism, you know, all the different swings. But in terms of actually the neurodiverse, which is a, another marginalized category of individuals who feel like they are, you know, part of whatever you want to call it, society, that was the kind of point of jumping off from. And it really resonates to me. It really, really did in the sense of a lot of the engagements I had have had a strong mission behind them. You know, Volta was yeah. very much the point we're trying to solve for was artists do not make enough money. The top 0.1% of artists command 99% of revenues in the industry. It's more acute in music than any other sector. Uh, now. Yeah. COVID just completely wiped off anyone who was in Kanye West or Justin Bieber. So that was a huge mission there. Nez was all around helping the high street. It was, we didn't, with delivery, did not work with the major chains, like the McDonald's and whatever but the world. It was, you know, the family run in these uh, smaller chains. So, you know, with Matter, it was a huge, huge, huge part of the mission. To re empower those. I've worked with a lot of neurodiverse previously. I have personally seen and and helped and, and been with those who've suffered from, from various mental health conditions and, and disorders. So for me it was a case of, okay, if I can use my experience again with with what I've been done a lot of in the past as B2C marketplaces, especially that have a geographic constraint, i.e., people dating will only go a certain distance before it becomes, you know, too long of a trip to go meet someone. So I thought, okay, I've got tons of experience there and have done it successfully multiple times. And I love the mission. Okay. I can be effective here. I can add value because that's one thing I I hate anything that smells of consulting personally, in the sense of, I like to be on the inside as opposed to the outside. So for me, it's, yeah, can I offer value? Can I actually be useful? And do I believe in the mission and can I get our bed for it? And that was the, it resonated from the get go. So yeah, I've been, been alongside Jamie and the founders ever since, ever since the start. And it's the kind of going from strength to strength, just help them close another round of funding. So I guess stay tuned on the, on the progress of the matter team. Uh,
2: I, I think it's such a great idea. I mean, I, I've, so I've got ADHD probably with some other stuff. My, my wife definitely says I've got a few other things and it's, it's, it's a, it's <laughs> Sorry, a, I it's a laugh. we
1: are all, yeah, yeah,
2: no, <laughs> you know, it doesn't bug me at all. You know, it was one of those things. And, and I, I was diagnosed, so I mean, I grew up in a household where no one believed in that stuff, you know, you just have to work hard and be disciplined. That was, yeah. that was the answer to, to everything. And I, I struggled through varsity and I'm, and, you know, high school is easy. You just passed you know, you just have to mem- memorize stuff. But university was obviously not like that. You had to practice, and I didn't have the, uh, I didn't have the ability to practice. I and, I and I started another job, and and the job was more interesting because we were building really cool stuff. And, you know, how your priorities go when you when you focus on stuff like that. And uh, ironically, my mother-in-law, who now was not my mother-in-law then pre getting married, she used to teach kids with all these disabilities or challenges or whatever it was. And she said to me like after one or two nights of drinking, she said, have you ever been checked for ADHD or ADD or anything? Because you're pretty high on that spectrum. Like, you know, candidly. It's like, well, no, never. Anyway, it was, it was literally a thick of a switch from, you know, once I started being uh, medicated, I went from failing maths to, you know, creamy maths. And it was just that ability to sit down and spend a whole Saturday going through examples because you just couldn't be bothered. Like, I get this concept, I get it, it's easy. Like, why do I need to, why do I need to practice this? This is easy. And then you'd go to the exam and you're like, damn it, I should have practiced this a little bit more, you know, memorize, because in in, my university, you weren't allowed to take in any formulas, like a cheat sheet of, of, like, all the the integrations of you to memorize everything. But if you don't practice, you don't know how to, you don't, you don't use that. Anyway, so long story short, I mean, you know, going to where I'm now, and I'm talking to people now in, in their sort of forties and fifties. They're now being diagnosed with whatever it is asperger's or whatever and it's like this unveiling of a new identity but also like you know for some of them it's it's the reason why they haven't been able to do stuff like they couldn't understand why and it's put them into depressions and put them into all sorts of situations and just having a place to talk to someone to talk to that's also gone through it or, or just realize that then are they're not broken They just got a different, a different, a different path. So that's why this one jumped out at me as as one of the things to chat about.
1: Just your point about not being broken. I think that's a huge part of it as well, which is people have different things to offer and different strengths and, you know, poignantly with ADHD, the MI5, for example, and spy agencies are actively recruiting those ADHD, improved reaction times, quick thinking, so on and so forth. So exactly. It's just the rebalancing of where one's strengths are as opposed to anything else. Have have you ever read called hunters and farmers? No, and now you're testing me with my book knowledge, and you're picking up on the books it's, that I, I have not read as well. It's it's, it's another it's, a, it's,
2: it's another good book to read, and, and 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 basically the guy who writes the book, his premise is that the people with that the neurodivergent, specifically ADHD, they they were the, the hunters. In in the end, of you know the original times, let's call it, and you had those that were the farmers, and and obviously when we went into schooling. People, you know, 100 years ago, right, there's only only so educating people like in the 1920s or 1930s. Um, it was the farmers that, that set up the education system. So that's why everything is what it is. It's factory mindset. You know, you got to sit still, you have got to listen, you have got to do these subjects, you have to regurgitate what you know, etc. But the the hunters were those people that had to go and get the food. So they had to be hyper aware. They had to be able to focus. They had to be able to go long periods. With a lot of change and recognize patterns and all that kind of stuff, and it's a very interesting take on it because it it, it kind of even reconfirms that that you're not broken. You just like in those adventure games where you get points for different capabilities and abilities. Yeah, you're just yeah. one of those. You know, and
1: exactly, exactly.
2: So, so great. And 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 the AI piece. I mean, so that's new. That's I'm very interested in co- computer vision. So, what's so going you on? You might be. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I figured you might be, yeah, so to, I guess, where to start with, uh, with edify. It is indeed my primary engagement, I guess. I'll start with a proposition ultimately, which is, so what edify is trying to do is to, to essentially apply computer vision at scale and specifically within the retail market. So I'll start with kind of that use case and then it's easier to start with the use case and then kind of broaden from there. But ultimately. With supermarkets, so use case number one, sort of around circa 2012, sorry 2012, 2013, as you would have seen, a lot of supermarkets brought in self-checkout tills, um, removing um, employees from doing the, you know, the checking out process. And the idea there was, you know, if we can save 20% unemployment costs, Great. and we might have to forego some revenue because people will do clever things around nicking stuff. Um, whether it's you know not scanning items or weighing a banana, taking the barcode and sticking it on something else, you name it. There's been some very there's some very clever ways people people will defraud um, supermarkets. So much so that it is accounts for a 700 billion dollar problem. So 10 sure. percent. It's a humongous silent problem, but you know the idea was well: we're saving twenty percent on labor, and we're foregoing ten no, percent. No, we're still better off from a margin perspective. Obviously, as computer vision has been scaling as a concept and it's hit the mainstream more and more and more, there's been a number of startups who've changed their attention to you know trying to use computer vision in in supermarkets and in in store scenarios. The problem there, though, with computer vision or anything ML is. You need training sets, huge data models, which in the context of retail, especially appreciating it customer data, would mean that the data has to leave a store, go up to some central cloud, do all the training model, and go back down to the store, mm. which that's, that was typically was the way which enterprise is not like, because there's a huge privacy concern, GDPR, customer data, you name it. So, the early entrance into the market, quasi competitors ultimately took a hardware approach and ultimately would put in you know, some server racks, data centers in each store, does a little bit of the mining, and off you go. That endeavor is obviously a very expensive one. The hardware endeavor means the total cost ownership of ownership the solutions are expensive. What I have done very very cleverly, is, or very intelligently rather, is taken a software first approach and found a way to ultimately integrate to all the existing point of sale players in these different retail environments ultimately meaning that edify is a software layer that sits inside one of these self-checkout tills. the camera that's already in the self-checkout tills, is all we need and ultimately what they've created is a system called federated learning or distributed centralized learning on edge devices such that every single point of sale system does a little bit of the learning stitches the data together keeps us data compliant and off we go and that has been you know a tremendous product decision that's actually with you know the only ones to market with that solution Right now at scale, having the accuracy levels we do, we are at 99. Point, we're actually 100% on the rounding, but we can't quote that. So we're at 99.999 to five decimal points. And ultimately have now seen that kind of escape velocity where we are literally, I guess it's a champagne problem, but a problem nonetheless, firefighting to grow faster in the sense that we have so much client demand. It's just rapidly going and we're having that kind of you know, huge escape velocity and, and off we go. I think you know really what I'd want to just call out there is, it's the framework that's really, really of value. You know, this framework of, of federated learning on edge devices, right now, the use case is in retail, huge amounts of data, consumer data. It's the highest data sets in, in, in pretty much of any sector. But what we're spending time on and what we have to field, a lot of inbound interest is in healthcare, easy use case, x-ray machines. Again, legacy, and, you know, legacy hardware that had a huge CapEx, CapEx number over it to replace those systems. So can we apply Edgeify to those, those legacy pieces of expensive hardware? Aviation. You know, the list goes on of the different use cases that our framework can be applied in. So, yeah, I personally love it. It hits my retail experiences. I'm an AI enthusiast for many a year. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. I, I, I must connect you up with a friend of mine in shipping. Please do. Yeah, that is another Yeah,
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's, there's actually a couple, and, and, I, and not nearly, obviously, as sophisticated as what, what you guys do with the vision. But I have built things where we used edge learning to solve problems and then feed that back. And then we followed an UDO loop uh, principle. So observe, orientate, decide, and act locally, and then they would come centrally. And it was very similar to what we did in shipping. So I'm very, it, it, they are doing, they, they'll have to go down the vision route for sure, because it's safety on the vessels. And they'll need to do something that is distributed because you've got a vessel that, you know, in the, in the middle of the ocean on a on satellite uplink, where bandwidth is going to be at a premium, and not everyone has bandwidth, and you know, not everyone pays for the satellites. Unless, unless Elon's got got satellites over them, I don't know. So I think it'd be interesting just to introduce you to to each other. And he's also London based, so yeah. I mean, he's he's the guy that got me out of banking uh, ah, into shipping. Okay. And he, you know, when you talk about the, the sort of crazy CEO, he used to drive me absolutely insane. Um, <laughs> because he used to what used to send me these WhatsApps with like all these ideas, and I'd be like, we haven't even built this part yet, and you want to build the rocket ship over there? You know, yeah. like just just chill. You know but but yeah it was a good it was a good three years it a good three and a half years because we i learned a lot from him so yeah i think it would be a good connection
1: we'd love for, to we'd love to yeah. yeah shipping makes a lot of sense and you know what i didn't really crystallize obviously we're currently in retail is you know given the, given the system we built it means that no one has to, to to scan an item ever again it's barcodeless uh item recognition all the suite of loss prevention stuff so it's yeah it's i'm finding it very very interesting i think so I think, you know I
2: remember when QR codes became fa- like fancy in the sense that, you know, because of COVID you couldn't yeah. have a menu. So you had have to just scan a QR code. And initially I was like, oh, this is a good idea. And then COVID kind of ended. And then you were still going to the same restaurants, the same place. And they were still saying, oh, you, know, you need to scan the QR code. But now it's like, yeah, but there's no why. It's like five seconds mm-hmm. for this thing to load the menu. And then this menu is this crap thing that I can't even get to. I can't even see what you've yeah. got. And like, I'm just going to go somewhere else.
1: It yeah, detracts you, from experience, I agree. I agree. So you, so you don't that, want to be on your phone in a restaurant with a friend or a partner or a family member, right? The point is to get off and, your phones.
0: Yeah. So
2: and, yeah, yeah, I'm you know, with you. And we I mean we spent, you know, the last couple of years of the last couple of years we spent a lot of time in South Africa. And it's the one thing we notice every time we come back to to the UK is table service is just not there. And it's mm-hmm. like the most important part of your meal. Yes, you can have a you can have some restaurants, where you will have a table service, but like we had drinks with some friends the other night and we were sitting outside and they're like we don't serve outside so you have to order through the app but then if you mm-hmm. want to order food you have to order from the bar mm-hmm. so it's like mm-hmm. so, so one one person is always running in and out to do orders and it's just so messy and and tables i mean yes i guess there's a i guess there's a wage thing to it but as you say sitting on the phone and now i mean specifically with and i'm sure with some of your friends some friends don't like it when you pay for their, their drinks or their, their, they they yeah. always want to pick up the bill and you want to pick up the bill so it becomes a little bit of a whose phone is fastest kind of thing yeah which distracts from the, the sort of conversation and then that opportunity to sneak off and pay the bill because now it's already done on their phone so there's this i mean it's such it's such stupid things like these are not really problems in life but it the the, the old thing of having of, of interaction with a human who's going to take this take the take the order chat to you tell you what's good Etc. you don't have to worry about finding the thing on the menu on, this mm-hmm. little, on your little phone. I mean, I think it's just, and then notification kicks off and you're like, oh, there's a text message from one of my clients, I gotta go I gotta make a phone call. You know, which has happened a few times too. Yeah. Um, as you say, you're disengaged from your devices in those circumstances. So those cameras, I'm, just, I'm curious, cause we did something with the biometric thing a couple of years ago. Does the camera have to be a certain spec, like HD camera or anything like that for it to do the recognition? 30 quid
1: logitech usb camera.
2: Well, that, that would be a, yeah, that would be an HD camera anyway. Nowadays. That's well,
1: true. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, exactly. You're right. But to be honest, most of the, uh, most of the tills and, and SEOs and POXs we're working with, they already have cameras integrated in there. And to be honest, there's, there's some projects where we're actually using just the CCTV cameras above them. Really. Wow, yeah. There's, there's, a, our CTO mean. is, and the, and the team are or wizards, or wizard wizards, let's just call it that and are very, uh, <laughs> very well respected in the industry. And yeah, we've been uh, battle tested to the nth degree. And as I, said, I think some of the, some of the people we're working with, like I mentioned, a certain massive tech player that tried to do it themselves that couldn't do it yeah. and are now using yeah. us in that exact same shop, I think is well in testament to, to, to the, to the, the strength of the product there, really. No, it sounds amazing. It really does. And, I, and I'm curious, have, have they, has anyone pushed you for the
2: facial recognition piece to happen, for recognizing people and, and that sort of stuff, or
1: have you stayed away from no, that? No, we've stayed away from that, I believe. Ultimately, it's a much more sensitive area of, of consumer data, right, in terms of GDPR. Ultimately, we, you know, from our perspective, the most we might be able to identify with an individual really is a hand if it's going over the scanner or something to that degree. Deliberately, we don't want anything that's actually personally identifiable it's quite a yeah it's quite a big piece okay so now this is my other question so you're pointing the camera at a specific area so that you are not getting involved the objects in... correct yeah so the, yeah. you know whatever where where your hand will scan the object previously so rather than scanning you're just showing the object yeah oh, that's cool because that's one of the pain i mean the self service shopping thing is you know you sit and
2: scan your barcode and then you put it on the scale then it doesn't recognize the weight and
1: about 12 oh, seconds that's... to do one banana, pen's item, it doesn't make any sense, let alone everything else, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so that biometric thing we did, you used to scan four fingers and you used to identify you. Mm-hmm. And they would use any, any cameras on HD. What, what would be interesting with what you're doing is you could authenticate the person to do their payment as well, using the same sort of concept. So you could also also do the age verification thing, which is also pain okay. Because, yeah. you know, you've just bought your Panados and now they have to come in you know, check that you're old enough to buy painkillers yeah no
1: yeah so. yeah yeah that's an interest that's actually yeah the, yeah i see where you're going with that the age that is very interesting i think payments is typically a very hard industry to break into the you know the, the ncrs and the pos guys of the world that's uh an area they are always very you know ultimately rightly so ring-fenced so yeah we we're you know we're not having to traverse into the the payment side of things that being said we're obviously all over transactional data because we have to be but yeah yeah the payment side certainly is something that would be of interest well i mean you don't have to, you don't have to own the payment thing but you could do the authentication for that yeah
2: yeah exactly or, or some part of the biometric validate or uh, part of the factor of authentication that would be interesting yeah we we the startup enrolling now is is a payment platform. what well, would we, we um Oh, I've forgotten the new tagline, which is very bad of me because I only heard it yesterday. But we basically build that's the UIs. That's why it's a new top... tagline.
1: <laughs> that's exactly yeah exactly. I'll, I'll yeah I'll
2: get in trouble. But basically, we, we build the UIs on top of all the APIs, so you can build your app, your fintech app, using our platform to deliver your solution. And then all the all the APIs sit behind, you know, what we've already built for you. And I think that's that's not a you know, you know from what I've seen in the market, it's a nice place to be, very much in. This bring-your-own-app direction, I think some things have gone still, where you, people want to build their own solution and, and deliver it. Um, I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, for example, sk- kids' school just keeping count of them with using computer vision, you know, for attendance records, for you know, safety situations, that sort of stuff. Again, you can't be really looking at faces, but if you could recognize uniform size, in you know, a body shape, that could be useful in, in at least keeping count and track of certain. Populous, I guess.
1: That's exactly what China is. China has been using right in the educational systems, computer vision at scale across primary and secondary schools. And the point they're doing it is, is ultimately exactly measuring attendance, measuring engagement, looking at facial features as to emotional sets, whether happy, sad, so on and so forth, but also to start applying prescriptive education. So it's exactly a use case there that I know is being employed by the Chinese state and I think is actually... Well, to account for can feel a little bit minority or poor, I think prescriptive education is is uh, tailored education is is a would be a huge benefit for for any country. I think just right now the potential, not politics, but framing around it is can feel so, a little bit invasive.
2: So when you say prescriptive, do you mean tailored to the individual, or do you mean right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah okay, yeah. Uh, I think it has to go that way. Uh, I think yep. this this factory factory mindset of. Everyone must learn maths, okay, actually everyone must learn maths, everyone must learn geography, everyone must learn history, everyone must learn biology, and these things, uh, I don't think necessarily helps anybody, uh, other than to memorize things. That's probably the only skill you learn. Agreed.
1: But look, and all, and all I think it does there is forcing you to learn something you're not, you're not, you're not inherently or, innate or innately capable, and it just makes you have confidence issues, right? Like, yeah, I'm not a creative, I'm not a wordsmith. English is my weakest subject, I saw it was at, sorry, at school, and by being forced to do English all the way through to, whatever, 18, 19, 20, I just felt like I sucked in languages. And it's, you know, it, whereas I'm, a, as I said, a mathematician, and that was always my thing. So I think, yeah, it's, it's I would have been benefited more by spending probably more of my education in, oh. in the math field.
2: Although you say that, I remember we had a subject in engineering called communication for engineers. That was okay. the subject. And, and I know it's our free college university, so you have to understand you know, big Afrikaans guys who don't speak English very well, now having to go and do a, a course for an hour every week on communications in English, because they had to be able to speak to other people. And the resistance was there because one, it was not so much, it was all the soft skills that we talk, we, we don't talk about soft skills anymore. Those are the soft skills you had to have, like how to disagree with somebody, how to have conflict, how to be accountable and also all that kind of stuff. And it was fascinating because for a lot of these guys, they, one, the default language wasn't English. So it was hard for them to do English. But the other thing was they couldn't get across because Afrikaans is quite a descriptive language and English is actually quite not a descriptive language, funnily enough. And I can't give you examples that will have be been Afrikaans, but I learned maths in Afrikaans and it was actually easier to learn maths in Afrikaans than it was to learn in English. Because there's there, like integration, there isn't actually a word for integration in Afrikaans. So you have to explain it as change in an area of a of a shape. That's basically how you have to explain it. And these guys had to, uh, to convert from their natural, the whole language, sorry, their mother tongue to English and then had to explain stuff. And it was fascinating to watch how, over six months, how this developed and how they actually did get those skills because obviously they had to get them but also how they were able to, to convey complex things that they struggled with to begin with, but all of a sudden became almost salesy and how many of these guys actually moved into sales and marketing, not engineering in the end of it. Cause they actually realized, they actually enjoyed communicating, but because they'd grown up and been clever and mathematical and analytical, they'd been stayed in that way. Like you will be an engineer, you'll go build bridges, you'll go build machinery, and then they realized that they actually found the spark by having the opportunity to go that way it's just a so fascinating as you were saying i think i was just connecting the dots and i going no that's actually something i hadn't really considered that you need to have that prescribed thing that prescribed thing but also to get people out of their comfort zone anyway it's been great telling me that we're almost in the hour so is, if do you want people to reach out to you do you want them to check out your, your companies i mean what, what's the best thing to to do following this
1: absolutely yeah I, i'd say i'm very active on linkedin as well and the mitchell goldman please do check out the companies if there's any of int- any of interest to, to explore as I said i've got my fingers in quite a few different pies these days so always up for having conversations where it's where it's where it's helpful and relevant but yeah ryan thank you very very much for having me really, really enjoyed this today and yeah please do please do reach out if it can be helpful
2: no yeah, that's been great chatting with you and i look forward to to having that uh, catch up at some point and we could share some. Some of those stories.
1: Some of the redacted stories, exactly. Yeah, yeah, good.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor. Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends
1: or colleagues.